Welcome to the Theology Research News Podcast, which brings highlights of the latest research and activities at KU Leuven's Faculty of Theology and Religious Studies to a worldwide audience. Today we feature a lecture by Anthony Godziba entitled No Boutique Theology, Leuven Between the Universal and the Particular. So my title is No Boutique Theology, Leuven Between the Particular and the Universal. I come to the celebration of 50 years of international programs in theology and religious studies as an outsider for the most part. I didn't study in Leuven, but for a long time before my first visit in 1999 to participate in LEST II, I deeply admired the program in theology here, its depth, its rigor, and its relevance. And over the years since my first visit, I have come back often, made many very good friends here, have sent students to study here and successfully pursue doctorates, and at times have been invited to look under the hood, so to speak, to participate in some of the workings of the program, an invitation that I feel honored to have been given. Oddly enough, as an undergraduate, I very, I very much did want to study here, but philosophy, not theology. In the early 1970s, as a student in the Archdiocesan Seminary in Philadelphia, my history of philosophy professor had our class read William Leupen's A First Introduction to Existential Phenomenology, a philosophy that went back to the things themselves and took everyday experience seriously. I was hooked. I looked to Leuven, the home of the Husserl archives, and asked to be sent there to study. I imagined Leuven swarming with phenomenologists, stroking their Husserlian beards, deep in thought, relentlessly applying the epoche to every experience they encountered. What a life. <laughs> of course, the seminary dean and rector turned down my request. During my years in the graduate theologate, Leuven faded from view, unfortunately, even while I tried to integrate my interest in continental philosophy and phenomenology with my newfound love of biblical hermeneutics and Christology. After leaving the seminary during my diaconate and then starting my doctorate in theology at the Catholic University of America in the early 1980s, Leuven again popped up on my radar. Big names like Franz Nehrink, Roger Aubert, Piet Franzen, whom we heard, Jan Walgrave's Unfolding Revelation, and others representing a theological scholarship that was unrivaled in its command of the Christian tradition and its sources, and a scholarly integrity that was put in service to the continuing development of the church without losing any of its critical edge or academic rigor. And of course, there was Skilovex. His Jesus and Christ books had swept me away. Sure, he had not taught in Leuven in decades, but he remained a bold representative of its hermeneutical spirit, the willingness to dive deep into the Christian narrative of discipleship and its tradition, and to retrieve its truth for a new and sometimes shockingly different context. As one looking in from the outside, I can only speak about the reception and reputation of Leuven theology, but as a fundamental and systematic theologian, who's been given an occasional peek inside the tent, it is this hermeneutical spirit that I want to talk about today. Let me begin by citing words that you have no doubt heard and read a million times before. The joys and hopes and the sorrows and anxieties of people today, especially of those who are poor and afflicted, are also the joys and hopes, sorrows and anxieties of the disciples of Christ. And there's nothing truly human which does not also affect them. Their community is composed of people united in Christ who are directed by the Holy Spirit in their pilgrimage toward the Father's kingdom and who have received the message of salvation to be communicated to everyone. 
For this reason, it feels itself closely linked to the human race and its history. This, of course, is the opening paragraph to Gallium et Spes, back into his pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Or as the Latin title says more exactly, in mundo huius temporis, in the world of today. Since these, momentous, since these momentous words that place the church's universal message of salvation in a specific historical context, the church has walked a tightrope between these universal claims of salvation and the historical consciousness of development and difference that forced itself upon Catholic thought and practice at least by the first half of the 20th century. The way this paradox was worked out by many theologians of Vatican II and afterwards was signaled by the famous imagery used by Pope John XXIII in his opening address at Vatican II. The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the formation in which it is clothed is another. As Brad Hinsey and I argued in our introduction to the collection of essays entitled Beyond Dogmatism and Innocence, Hermeneutics, Critique, and Catholic Theology, I'm sorry to be so shamelessly self-promoting here, uh, this employment of what can be called the kernel and husk metaphor characterized many earlier theological uses of hermeneutical reasoning. That is, the claim that the successful reinterpretation of a Christian truth, the essence or the kernel, for a new generation or a new culture, meant simply the replacement of the outdated cultural expressions, the form or the husk, with more relevant ones. Subsequent events in, question, in Western culture eventually re revealed that this approach once thought to be a, a sophisticated navigation of historical consciousness, was naive. Essences are never graspable per se, but always historically and culturally situated. Essence and form are mutually conditioning. The complex layerings and interweavings of Catholic faith claims with the fraught cultural context in which they are practiced and pondered have impelled contemporary Catholic theologians to be more hermeneutically and critically and culturally attuned. We have, Brad Hinsey and I characterize this approach as a third naivete in the history of Catholic theology. That is an important step beyond what Paul Ricoeur had called a second naivete in philosophical hermeneutics. By third naivete, we mean a theological approach that is committed to the Christian narrative while being intensely aware of the disturbances, differentiations, and dislocations that saturate contemporary culture. For example, can one still hope when contemporary culture seems to be rooted in celebrity, consumer capitalism, power, and ideology, all of which challenge our discernment of the presence of God's grace in the world? It seems to me that Leuven theology, with its particular way of cultural attunement, had put into practice a kind of third naivete long before we coined that phrase. Its theological program took up the challenge of balancing universality and particularity devotion and liberation, and church and culture in a way that has advocated for an active, engaged discipleship in and by the church in a scattered and fragmented world. But before I pursue this angle, one more detour, if you don't mind, through sociology rather than theology, which helps to explain my title. 20 years ago, the sociologists Chris Rojek and Brian Turner published a sharp critique of the cultural turn in the social sciences, aimed at what they called decorative sociology. They identified a trend that works chiefly at an aesthetic level, where culture has eclipsed the social, and where literary interpretation has marginalized sociological methods. 
More specifically, decorative, decorative sociology meant, in their words, a branch of modernist aesthetics, which is devoted to a politicized textual reading of society and culture. This type of sociology, they said, ignored an empirical research agenda that might lead to an alternative integrated perspective on body, self, and society. This became more acute when the cultural term was linked with postmodernism. With an emphasis on deconstruction and irony, this amounted to what they considered to be a return to an openly idealistic approach to the study of cultural phenomena. While being profoundly politicized, seeing every action and artifact as political, no matter how trivial, decorative sociology has no sustained political agenda. To develop a detailed policy would be to take a position and therefore challenge the commitment to relativism. I find this critique by Turner especially um, uh, remarkable because he's written so sensitively about the postmodern issues. As an alternative, they urge the method of engaged detachment, which defends the researcher's political engagement with the object of inquiry, while placing responsibility on researchers to exercise critical, detached scrutiny of the focus of their inquiry. In other words, while sociologists can be politically engaged, they need to avoid emancipatory politics, which would prejudice the relationship between the observer and the object of study. They should practice instead a critical method that allows a more reflexive intellectual engagement with politics, which engages with embodiment and emplacement as the fundamental categories of action. While thinking of this article in preparation for this lecture, it turns out I had misremembered the title. I thought it was boutique sociology. But whether boutique or decorative, their point holds. The cultural turn leads down the slippery slope to a disembodied cultural theory sometimes. That is, an intoxication with certain theories and texts, thereby ignoring the behaviors of particular persons, bodies, and cultures. And becoming, as Rojek and Turner put it, obsessed with nomenclature and issues of positioning. Claiming to have thrown the net wide to include all kinds of culture, a discipline tyrannized by method or theory instead paints itself into a corner, focusing on its favorite things and thus becoming decorative without any substance, and a boutique, a niche project. With its attention to the rich and deep Christian tradition, to cultural expressions and formations of all kinds, to the diverse cultures in which the Christian tradition is immersed, and to the diverse cultures from which it has been purged, how did Leuven theology avoid painting itself into a corner or becoming a boutique or niche theology? Part of an answer can be found in its overt hermeneutical turn and its liberationist commitments. A clue can be found in an essay that a Leuven colleague suggested to me was game-changing for the theology program. The 1998 essay by Georges de Scraber, Paradigm Shift in Third World, Third World Theologies of Liberation. The subtitle tells the tale, From Socioeconomic Analysis to Cultural Analysis. In a wide-ranging survey, Descraver tackled the efforts of cultural theories and globalization, or the effect, I'm sorry, the effects of cultural theories and globalization on liberation theology's option for the poor, its view of the dialectic between theory and praxis, and its commitment to changing oppressive structures. He found that while meetings of Latin American bishops' conferences in the post-Vatican two years, at Medellin, Puebla, Santo Domingo, began to shift their attention from the economically oppressed to the culturally oppressed, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 
and the dismantling of state socialism in the late 80s and early 90s was a shock to the values of the left. Till now, he says, there had existed something like a viable alternative to capitalism. But suddenly this dream was gone. The triumphant neoliberal free market economy was proclaimed as the last stage of history. And as he says, the old utopia of liberation from capitalism had lost its mystique and quasi-religious appeal. Its militants are filled with despair, powerlessness, and disillusionment. What complicated matters was the concomitant shift from modern cultural values to postmodern ones. The pillars of modernity, such as confidence in technology, the sovereignty of nation states, and the belief in steady progress, as well as liberation theology's use of modern theories of economic analysis, were undermined by the postmodern breakdown of classical unifying centers, the collapse of grand narratives, the rise of social reflexivity, which reckons with the ever-provisional character of acquired knowledge, and the fragmentation of traditional cultural anchors that have been maintained by modernity. Chief among the disruptive forces of cultural continuity is globalization, which promotes the commodification of culture, the interrogation of traditions, and the aestheticization of cultural politics. Desgraver's conclusion was that the cultural shifts provoked by globalization were too complex for a mere economic reading of history and that a deeper reflection on cultural changes and their theological consequences was needed. As a catalyst for this approach, Desgraver cites, of all people, Joseph Ratzinger, who, while prefect of the CDF, spoke of Christian faith as a culture. He emphasized the need for religious reflection and called for an interculturality, that was Ratzinger's term, in which various culturally embedded religious traditions embark on a journey of development which prepares them for intercommunication with one another. Descraver endorsed this position, since reflection, he said, paves the road for dialogue. Dialogue becomes easier for a reflexive person, especially when reflection teaches one to look at one's particular tradition from a distance, in order to uncover in it unreflected elements, so that even in Christianity as a reflexive religion, not only persists in everyday life, but also once in a while threatened to carry the day. As was told to me, Descraver's thinking about culture and dialogue provided a major impetus for the development of a new direction in the Leuven theological program. And the key was that he linked this emphasis on culture with a liberationist commitment rooted in the Christian tradition. The colleague who recommended that I read Descraver's essay emphasized to me that Leuven theology indeed engages difference but that diversity, in his words, is not cherished. The goal is dialogue. I take this to mean that diversity is not prized per se, merely on its own as a value. For what would be the point of differences all sitting together jostling each other for space and attention? Terry Eagleton has made the argument as to how commodifiable this kind of postmodern identity politics is. Rather, the point is for different cultural assumptions and frameworks to enter into a dialogue in a communal search for a common truth and common virtues for living. And when the dialogue partners are clustered around Christianity, a particular narrative that claims to have universal application, the stakes are higher and the complexities mount up. That's why at the outset I quoted the opening of Gaudium at Spes, an inventory of joys and hopes, sorrows and anxieties would reveal different contemporary types of each different ways that each community 
And even each individual would fill each of those terms with meaning. And yet being united in Christ, as the introduction says, and directed by the Holy Spirit in their pilgrimage toward the Father's kingdom, that's a shared message of salvation that is offered to all. This precisely is the tightrope that Christian theology, as hermeneutical as it is Trinitarian, has to walk. The balance of diversity and unity, particularity and universality, and there's no way to avoid this dialectic. And Christian theology also has a double task in determining what is authentic Christian revelation, both in the short term, and you know us, we fundamental theologians, we always quote 1 Peter 3.16. It is our obligation to give a reason for our hope. I understand that as a short-term uh, task, uh, right, we, we are to give an answer right now and we are being beseeched or challenged. And we have a task to do this reflection over the long haul, Anselm's fetus querens intellectum. These tasks rule out any objective extrinsicist theology that floats above the particular performances of discipleship in Christ, but also any boutique theology that chooses a particular theoretical niche and ignores the concrete implications of the universal claims of faith. From my perspective, the best insight as to how Leuven theology has put Descraver's cultural plus liberationist uh, impetus into action, and how it has hermeneutically walked this tightrope between particularity and universality, comes from the con continuing series of less congresses, Leuven encounters in systematic theology. While issuing from a particular research program with a particular focus, the less congresses have had a global impact. Over the years, they have become one of the important public faces whereby Leuven theology presents its character to the world. Every two years, Lest has attendees from every continent but Antarctica, thus mirroring the international makeup of the student body as well. The presence of so many from different cultures, either as students in the international program or as participants in the many congresses here in Leuven, signals that amidst the commitment to a communally shared message of Jesus regarding God's all-encompassing love, each can find in the interpretation of this message something that speaks to one's own particular situation and is applicable to one's own cultural context. This wide range of cultural assumptions and locations made a forceful impact on me when I attended Lest for the first time in 1999. After giving a paper that dealt partly with Heidegger's critique of ontotheology, during the question and answer period, an African student challenged me point blank. Why do I have to worry about Heidegger's critique in my African situation? I was stumped and had difficulty coming up with a coherent answer on the spot. And it didn't help that the scraver who was moderating the session kept reminding me that my time was running out. <laughs> After that session, I thought long and hard about the true particularity of what the true particularity of what I had assumed were the universally self-evident presuppositions of my own theologizing. How could I bridge such an obvious cultural divide? It's clear to me, having attended every last but one, and looking at the published results over the years, that the faculty planners of the various last congresses were thinking long and hard about this issue too. I can't survey every last, of course, but let me offer as examples the first two, and two of the more recent congresses, in order to demonstrate how the issue of the universal in the particular has been approached. The International Congress on the Myriad Christ was held in November 1997. Technically, it was not a LEST Congress, but the idea of LEST was born from its international success. And this meeting is 
consider the unnumbered origin of the series. Oh, there is a musical reference here. Similar to the way Anton Bruckner's Symphony Number no. Zero anchors the numbered set of symphonies. So uh, Professor Murrigan uh, and Jacques Haas started Lest Zero, I guess. That's really Lest One, but in brackets. The subtitle pro tackles the problem head on. Plurality and the quest for unity in contemporary, the in contemporary Christology. In the preface to the Congress volume, the conveners, uh, Terence Murrigan and Jacques Haas, clearly lay out the central challenge. Quote, what is at issue is the multiplicity of portraits of Jesus, which characterizes the contemporary theological landscape and the challenges thrown up by this multiplicity. Can properly Christian discourse survive if its traditional center, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is dissolved into a myriad of disparate and even conflicting images and notions? Is the quest for unity in Christology illusory and even counterproductive? And what are the preconditions for authentic Christological discourse? Close quote. With a number of prominent speakers such as Roger Haight, Bruno Forte, Francis Young, and, and Michael Amalados, this Congress dealt with the issue of plurality mainly from a religious or a theological perspective. In other words, the issue of plurality is approached mainly as an intra-religious, theological, and ecclesial problem and the inter-religious dialogue looms as a major issue. A good example is the essay by Jacques Dupuy, who speaks of Trinitarian Christology as the hermeneutical key for approaching the question of religious pluralism. Quote, the divine plan for humanity is one, but multifaceted. It belongs to the nature of the overflowing communication of the triune God to humankind to prolong, outside the divine life, the plural communication intrinsic to that life itself. End of quote. A short reference to socio-political issues appears in Raymond Beringer's essay on the, on the kingship of the Johannine Jesus, where he cites Johann Baptist Metz on the task of political theology to reclaim an awareness of the ongoing trial between Jesus' eschatological message and socio-political reality. The postmodern appears in the last essay, Liebenbuva's Christus Postmodernus, where he proposes a theology of the open narrative. Well, the issue here is postmodernity, as a set of philosophical issues problematizing traditional theological claims rather than postmodernism as a cultural movement, the employment of the metaphor of narrative opens onto at least the beginnings of a consideration of, difficult cult of, of different cultural frameworks and their material instantiations. Lest two, Sacramental Presence in a Postmodern Context in 1999, brought the issue of the postmodern to the forefront by examining the continued plausibility of the church's sacramental imagination. Granted, the major concern of the Congress is still driven by mainly philosophical concerns, mainly the fate of sacramental theology after the critique of the metaphysics of presence. The conveners Levenbuva and Lambert Lason summarize the focus this way, quote, where can we think God appearing in, such, in a so-called postmodern setting in which no foundation seems given? In what way is it possible to signify reflexively the presence of God, which is confessed in faith? Moreover, how can we understand sacramental presence after the supposed end of metaphysics, the traditional philosophical tool for sacramental theological thinking? End of quote. Of course, Heidegger and Derrida make frequent appearances in the published essays, including I Confess My Own. But the issue of sacramental presence is approached from a variety of perspectives, from the linguistic to the symbolic to the erotic. And the thicker aspect of culture also begins to make a more sustained appearance. 
For example, George Descraver continues the points made in his earlier essay and complains that most writers on sacramentality, quote, tend to content themselves with musing on intra-ecclesial topics. But I see hardly any development of a mystical or sacramental vision that envisions one's place within the contemporary social context, end of quote. His antidote is a turn to justice. The God question, he says, ought to be lived and answered in the practice. Those who have not experienced gratuity in real life can hardly be expected to understand the meaning of divine gratuity expounded in learned discourses. Vincent Miller, in his essay, puts the cultural concerns right up front by locating debates concerning presence within a cultural horizon. And, in his words, employing methods of cultural analysis that situate culture and meaning within concrete infrastructures of power and material culture. His analyses of the reformations of the 16th century and the 19th and 20th century liturgical renewal in terms of popular practices and the power of images lead, led him to conclude that, quote, postmodern suspicions of presence are valuable, but are always accompanied by a history of conflict over the power of cultural production and interpretation beneath this postmodern anxiety. Thus, Descraver, Miller, and others began to introduce into Lest's theological conversation a closer examination of the areas of social culture, material culture, power dynamics, all of which are elements of lived experience, which provide a foundation, but not the only foundation, for dogmatic claims, and which provoke encounters with difference in a non-idealized way. And even though concerns over the end of metaphysics provide the core questions, there's no theoretical dead end here, no niche theologizing. In fact, like the myriad Christ, the ensemble of papers displays an overt resistance to any one-size-fits-all answer, and a willingness to leave the questions and the challenges open to further exploration through a variety of approaches. A look at two more, two more recent less congresses shows a similar and perhaps even bolder way of working the dialectic between universality and particularity. In 2013, Lest 9's topic was liturgy, and in a way can be taken as parallel to Lest 2. Sacramental presence is now understood further in terms of performance, sacramental practice. In the words of its convener, Joris Geldhoff, Lest 9 focused on understanding the mysteries involved in the liturgy, as well as the processes and dynamics through which they are mediated, and doing that primarily theologically. But despite the avowed emphasis on the need to bring, to bring together liturgical scholars and systematic theologians, other factors enter in as well. Even the title of the Congress itself, Mediating Mysteries, suggests not only the fact of mediation, in line with the sacramental imagination, but especially the cultural form of that mediation. In commenting on the famous phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, Geldhoff notes that how to conceive the connection between liturgy and faith is still strongly debated, with neither liturgists nor systematicians having the advantage of articulating mystery for a contemporary context. To further the dialogue, what Les Nine did was throw the net wide, invite scholars from different Christian and academic traditions, and sketch out a program for this articulation, starting with the fundamentals, the Gospels and the Christ event, then considering the historical traditions which transmit the encounter with mystery, then the investigative research into these traditions, the performative connection of the mystery with other areas of life, and finally, the ways in which the mystery discharges itself in different types of commitments in the world. 
is in, this conclu- is in the concluding section of this volume, where the liturgical scholars Andre Grillo and David Fagerberg present their very different positions, that the universal particular dialectic is most clearly present. Grillo, in arguing that the pastoral nature of Vatican II does not reduce the council's theological significance, but rather enhances it, strongly endorses an interdisciplinary approach to liturgical theology. For example, he says, an anthropological study of ritual ensures understanding the experience of faith and of theological reflection in terms of openness to otherness, and hence in terms of their place and condition. One could almost say, he says, that it is ritual imminence discovered by anthropology which ensures theological transcendence. Cultural particularity hovers covertly in the background behind our common orientation toward God. Theology of the liturgy, he says, is is interdisciplinary, not because it chooses to be, but because it serves God and humankind. David Fagerberg, emphasizing liturgical theology as theologia prima, and the liturgy as an act of theosis, emphasizes otherness in his own way. The liturgy, he says, invites us into a communion with the perichoretic source of being. This is why we step in and out, in and out of the liturgy. Not because God works here and not there, not to temporarily escape the world, but for our ocular regeneration. It gives theologians eyes to see with. It gives them a world to see. Theosis as communion, yet performed in a thousand liturgical acts, the dialectic of unity and diversity in one of its boldest performative modes. When I first heard that Less 10 would be focused on the Second Vatican Council, I thought, oh no, not another in an endless series of Vatican II celebrations. But Anna Marie Meyer, the convener, made a brilliant move. I'm not saying that because she's sitting here either. It's in the paper. (laughs) Well, too late now. She made a brilliant move, choosing a topic that was not at all business as usual, but rather one that called for a close examination of the letter and the spirit of the council by focusing on the forgotten documents of Vatican II. What hidden insights, what surprising applications could be found tucked away in the interstices of a set of documents that had already been relentlessly raked over. On paper, the topics look standard and perhaps even talked out. Divine revelation, truth, education, people of God. But the way the topics were taken on by the various authors revealed the diversity of approaches to the council's adjournamento emphasis and plurality of applications asking whether divine revelation was compatible with human freedom, whether dialogue can proclaim the truth, whether education is for here or hereafter, where the council really empowered the people of God. In a way, as Meyer hints in her introduction, each of these is in some way about dialogue, which implies immediately different others who come together in conversation on a journey toward a shared truth, whether different by culture, by religious tradition, by gender, or by role in the church. There is even an examination of the abuse of dialogue. James Leachman's stunning examination at the end of the volume of restoring communion among those who have been traumatized by their encounters with church authority. The difference that different cultures make is present throughout the Congress volume. For example, in Philip Rossi's contribution, which calls for a constructive rethinking of the church's longstanding teaching 
of the complementarity of faith and reason by attending to the contextualization of this teaching within a contemporary world of plural cultures. An especially potent example comes from the three speakers, Levin Buva, Hafang Maria Ko, and Kevin Linehan, who deal with Gravissimum Educationis, the Declaration on Christian Education, and Perfecte Caritatis, the, the, the decree on the adaptation and renewal of religious life. Gravissimum Educationis speaks of four transitions in the ongoing dialogue of salvation, from European to global Catholicism, from Christian state to pluralistic society, from apologetics to hermeneutics of dialogue, and from traditional to multimodal, multimodal forms of knowledge. Meyer summarizes the three contributions this way, quote, next to the metaphor of interpreting our theologies of love and being interpreted, interrupted by love, stand the metaphors of becoming fire and of the beautiful work. All action-oriented metaphors, not passive metaphors, an indication that the four transitions are not automatic, but rather the fruits of active engagement of culture. I've used the less congresses as my example because as one of the internationally accessible public faces of the Leuven Theological Program, they reflect its core. At that core is a concern to do theological reflection responsibly. That means to do justice to the crux of the Christian message and the various contexts in which that message is preached. Of the four less congresses I have surveyed, each is about a very central and very traditional Christian teaching. Christology, sacramental presence, liturgical celebration, the persisting truth of the teachings of an ecumenical council. But none of these topics have been treated in genere, or as an intellectual puzzle, or in some extrinsicist or juridicist way. From the start, the concern has been to examine the faith claim in a hermeneutical way, historically and contextually. From the start, the Christology Congress took a risk, followed by every last since, and by living theology, I think, as a whole, by raising the question of how, quote, properly Christian discourse can survive if its tr traditional center, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is dissolved into a myriad of disparate and even conflicting images and notions. It invited historical and implicitly cultural consciousness to the table to dialogue with Christian doctrine. We all know that inviting Christ historical consciousness to the party always brings trouble. If the past is different from the present, and if the present is different from the future, then the present has nothing absolute about it. The status quo has no gotta, no ought, no have to built into it. Any present synthesis of knowledge is always partial and can always be surpassed. And cultural consciousness brings more trouble. Intractable cultural differences that can only be resolved by serious conversation and more conversation. That is why two of the figures in interpretation theory that have had a major impact on theology, Hans-Georg Gadamer and his hermeneutics and Jürgen Habermas and with, with critical theory, have always insisted that interpretation toward the truth is a journey of conversation and that every conversation is a bet on the future. That eventually, through dialogue, a consensus or a fusion of horizons will be reached without erasing the particular historical and cultural stance of the conversation partners. That hermeneutical commitment is one element that allows Leuven theology to easily avoid any sort of boutique thinking because it welcomes the mutual interaction of the universal and the particular. 
What about the cultural plus liberationist impetus? If less is any indi in indication, the importance of culture and cultural diversity has grown over the years. The awareness that social, political, economic, and aesthetic issues inflect every attempt to give a reason for Christian hope, every act of Fides Quirin's intellectum. This ensures that Gaudium et Spes's joys and hopes, sorrows and anxieties, and their particular historical and cultural contexts never fade from view. The focus on liberation is still there, even if its per perspective has widened from its original Latin American focus. The presence of the Center for Liberation Theologies, directed for many years by Jacques Haas and now under the direction of Judith Gruber, still making Leuven theologians aware of the need for liberation from whatever forces dehumanize us, the values of the kingdom of God that promote that liberation, and the various cultural contexts in which that grace is experienced. And so no boutique theology here, especially in light of the faculty's self-description, cognizant of the contemporary secularized and religiously pluralized context, and in constant dialogue with other scientific disciplines, including philosophy, history, literature, sociology, psychology, etc., theology in Leuven is characterized by its profound hermeneutical, theological, and historically based approach, in which text and context, faith and interpretation, historicity and normativity, theory and praxis are held closely together. Now, we all know that most mission statements are bunk and not worth the pixels that project them onto our monitors. But in this case, the public face of Lumen theology most definitely puts the universal in the particular into practice in the widest possible way. So no boutique thinking here. At the end here, if it's not too pretentious, let me conclude by stealing a line from Edward Skilovic's. Sure, as I said, Skilbeck's left Leuven in 1958. But as I said at the outset, his hermeneutical spirit captures some of the spirit that animates Leuven theology today. And so I think it's fair that Skilbeck's great insight into the Catholic incarnational and sacramental imagination can also be a watchword or tagline for the theology practiced here at KU Leuven. Quote, the world and human history in which God wills to bring about salvation are the basis of the whole reality of faith. It is there that salvation is achieved in the first instance, or salvation is rejected and disaster is brought about. In this sense, it is true that extra mundum nulla salus. There is no salvation outside the human world. Our expression of God and his saving initiative is dependent both on that divine initiative and on the historical context in which human beings express him. End of quote. And that, I think, is a fair snapshot of living theology between the universal and the particular. Ad multos anos. Thank you.